The following Art Trap production is brought to you by the Gallifreyan Embassy and has been made possible by donations from listeners like you. Live, standing in the cobwebs of Susan's abandoned room, it's Doctor Who Podshock. Doctor Who Podshock. Okay, well, let's do it now. I <laughs> Whatever it is, if it's valuable, send it to us. <laughs> <laughs> For the best in all things Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who Podshock, the podcast all about Doctor Who, the longest-running science fiction television program with Louis Trapani. Hello. Ken Deep. Hello. James Norton. Hello. News. Fabulous. Reviews. Oh, no. And fan mail for James. Uh, 40,000. Doctor Who Podshock from the Gallifreyan Embassy and Outpost Gallifrey. You know, that guy James was really cool. Oh, yeah. We blew that. <laughs> I'm the Doctor. And who are you? Outpost Gallifrey presents Doctor Who Podshock, episode 114. Hello, fellow friends and ambassadors. This is Louis Trapani here, Trap One, with another episode of Doctor Who Podshock. I'm fresh off the heels of the New Media Expo, and, um, you know, it was a lot of fun, and I, I'm sure I have more to tell you about that. I have I've written a blog about it on my site, um, arttrap.com, if you want to check it out. Uh, very interesting. It's great meeting up with other podcasters. It's a great community that we have here together. Uh, but unfortunately, we're kind of all spread apart and, you know, across the country and out, actually not just by the borders of this country, but all over the world. So it's an incredible opportunity for us all to come together under one roof and um, and, and, and talk shop <laughs> and other things as well. Um, I do appreciate um, everyone that I did run into there and, and um, the friendships that I made there. And uh, I'm not going to go, you know, listing everyone's names because um, this will take up the whole episode. And we got a lot to cover here. In fact, we're covering another event from the West Coast, Gallifrey 19. We were there last February, Ken, myself, and thousands of other Doctor Who fans. <laughs> we had a grand old time there, and our coverage of, of Gallifrey 19 still continues, and it continues in this episode. We have an interview with Sylvester McCoy. We haven't had an uh, interview with Sylvester McCoy since... Um, well, we last interviewed him when he was at Icon, which was a, a good 10 years ago or so, or maybe nine years ago now. Uh, so it's been a while. So we have that on deck. Ken will be joining me for that. Uh, then we have uh, a review from the show itself. And I believe that was, uh, uh, if I'm just, hope, hopefully I'm remembering their names right now. I believe that's Keith and Kathy has a review of Gallifrey 19. And um, Darth Skeptical returns <laughs> with a classic review of the arc. This has been, uh, this has actually been on deck for a while, and we just, it somehow got lost in the madness. But, um, you know, we have a little, <laughs> a little reprieve of the madness and sanity, and uh, Darth Skeptical is back with us. We're glad to have him back. And uh, this is um, a, a segment that he does uh, with the classic episode, The Arc. Anyway, so strap yourselves in. Uh, set coordinates, we're ready to take off and enjoy the show. Yes, this is Sylvester McCoy. You're listening to Doctor Who Pod Shock. Shock Pod? It's a shock. Is it pod? Is there a shock in it? <laughs> 
have 142 minutes of listening time and like science fiction? Then listen to the Joving Gay Chronicles, available for free on Podiobooks.com. In my four-part short story collection, I answer the question, what happens when humans cross paths with intelligent aliens that claim to be prophets from God? But don't worry, religion isn't an overbearing theme of the story. Remember, if you're looking for some hard science fiction to listen to, then the Jovian Gate Chronicles is right up your alley. For more information on how to download the free audiobook, visit www.thejoviangate.com. We're using experimental technology. Experimental technology. Well, jolly good. And yeah. that's grand. It's, it's good. good. It's Is good. It? Yes. That's grand. That's good. Very good. Cheers. Thank you once again. And thank you so much for, thank you. for coming to LA for Gallifrey 19. My pleasure. The first thing that Lewis and I had talked about only a few hours ago, the first thing that we wanted to say on behalf of everybody, our listeners, Doctor Who fans everywhere, is thanks for being an ambassador through the lean years. After the, the show left in 89, you were still very visible, still always out there, a champion of the show, going, making public appearances, being involved in the, in the Paul McGann movie, in the, in the television movie. And, and then when Big Finish came along, you, you were right on top of it when B, uh, BBV did yeah. their, their line. So uh, from Doctor Who fans, it's just a, a warm thank you for being, you know, just the guy. The okay. guy for all those times. Thank you. Well, it wasn't a hard thing to do because I enjoyed doing it. <laughs> well, it's uh, not only that, but you also took over the series during a um, what in what many consider maybe a troubled waters, perhaps with you know you had the lead actor previously who left the series not on his own accord, and you had to fill in. But you did. You were remarkable. You had great spirits. Um, you know, we were there at the time. Remember your energy and, and your level of enthusiasm really bridged that troubled waters, if we could say, and um, your professionalism. So I'm a bridge over troubled waters. You're a Simon and Garfunkel. Yes. Now, you have great chemistry with Sophie Eldred. The two of you guys, to this day, you were on the opening ceremony last night, having fun, having a great time, and we were remarking that that it seems that we go to other kinds of conventions. There isn't that that sense of play, that sense of like you're here at a convention, but it's still it's not all autographs and and books and things. It's talk for yourself. <laughs> all I've been doing all day is signing. <laughs> but I know what you mean yes. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I uh, I when I first started going to conventions, the very first I ever went to were in America because yeah. they were. Not many in England, and I hadn't been to any. And also, I hadn't gone to them because uh, I was too busy doing Doctor Who. But for some reason, I always got a break to come over here to go to America because the producer liked the thought of Americans, you know, watching Doctor Who. Uh, but I got uh, invited in after about a year or so of coming to many conventions in the States. I got invited to one in England. I'd been invited before, but could never do it. But this time, I had time. I thought, I better do this. I must go to this convention. 
because I've not been to an English one. So I accepted it. There was some planet something or other, four, five, seven, I don't know what it was. Anyway, I thought, well, yeah, I'll go there. And then another invite came in from the Liverpool Doctor Who, uh, you know, on the same weekend. Would I go to that one? And I said, oh, I can't stop it. It's already agreed to go to another one. I get to this one in Birmingham. It wasn't the Doctor Who convention. It was a Star Trek convention. And I had no idea. I thought I'd, I'd actually uh, accepted a Doctor Who convention. And so I actually turned out the very first Doctor Who convention I could have gone to, to go to a Star Trek convention. I must say, the Star Trek people really like me. And I think it might be because of that. The Doctor Who people were really upset. <laughs> so a lot of them don't believe me to this day that I made the wrong choice by total ignorance. Well, I remember the first time that you came to the States, it was almost like your, your launch with John Hurt. It was a launch, yeah. I hadn't even started making Doctor Who. I got the, the job on Monday and Thursday. I was in Atlanta. And um, how were you received? Like, you, you come in, you get to this convention, all of a sudden there's this new guy who's suddenly going to be Doctor Who. Were Doctor Who fans scratching their heads or were they, you know, applauding wild? Well, uh, they were laughing a lot. And um, I did the convention and, and John Nathan Turner said to me, he said, you've taken that to this like a duck to water, to the convention life. Because I actually enjoyed it because it's live performance. Mm -hmm. And um, I just kind of what we call and you know farted about and uh, on the stage I can't remember I just remember having a very good time and doing kind of comedy act where people would come up and shake my hand and I fell off the stage and then I'd have to get them to try and push me back up onto the stage and I couldn't make it and they were pushing it and then as they pushed me up I fell over them and I somehow made it so that they ended up on the stage and I was still off the stage <laughs> going what? listen you know so I made a whole comedy routine so I remember that as part of it because I hadn't done Doctor Who, I mean, I hadn't even made one. So I couldn't actually talk about Doctor Who because I hadn't seen it for years either. And what could you say about, oh, I'm going to be the Doctor. So how are you going to play the Doctor? I don't know. I don't know. You know down the lines and try not to bump into the monsters, <laughs> is what I said. Well, no, try and bump into the monsters is more dramatic for the part. <laughs> oh, please. A few years go by, now they're going to make this Fox television movie slash Universal slash... BBC slash everybody else who had their hand in the pie. Yeah. Uh, how do they uh, approach you for doing something like that? Is it, is it something where there was a question about it? Or are you right from day one? Well, no, they phoned up my agent and said, would I be interested in doing it? And I said, yes, because I'd always thought, because of what happened to me with, you know, having to take over from, uh, not from uh, Colin, but, Colin, but for thrust in. And I always thought, well, I must, I must do the the transfer, no matter what happens, even if something nasty goes wrong and I get kicked out or whatever, I'll still do that because the fans deserve it. They like it and they should have it. And so when the phone asked me if I'd do it, I said yes. And that was it, really. It, we, I timed this out using the, you know, the little thing on the DVD player. Yeah. You are in a, like a quarter of the movie. It's like the first If you divide it up into four, like a four-parter, you're in episode one. Oh, really? Episode one's all you. Oh, wow. <laughs> That makes me feel better. Yeah. So um, then some time goes by, and now the new show gets launched. And it seems almost like with you and, and with other actors who are in what we now call the classic series, everyone's been supportive. I mean, they come right up to you, ask you questions, and, and, and do you embrace it? Is it almost like a, like a, a, a society now where it's like... Uh, you know, I'm part of an exclusive club of men who have played Doctor Who or been in the show. Oh, yes, no, it's, it is like being in a club. And uh, we all meet every now and again. Sometimes we, we go to conventions and we're all there. Other times we meet individually and collectively.
like to be. And um, it's great. It's great to be a member of such a, an elite. And uh, great. I mean, some great, wonderful actors played Doctor Who. So to be part of their brotherhood, brotherhood is just you know privilege. Really. Well, um, I know. We, I I don't know. If you, I'm sure you're probably familiar with the most recent uh, Children in Need special where Peter Davison reprised his role and came back and did a little... Apparently that leaked out from you. Did it? Well, uh, uh, that's, that's the rumor. That's the rumor. <laughs> really? Did they reach out to you? No, I don't think so. I can't remember. I was too busy. I mean, I've been so busy over the last... I haven't hardly had a day off for the last two years. I did a musical and between that I managed to get to fit in a bill and just finished it a week ago that was filming it after we travelled all around the world so I have no idea about this Doctor Who oh, well, I was well, too busy yeah well, if you're not familiar with it was a children I know I know I heard after it was a children need and then we were kind Peter of speculating that maybe they had asked you or they, they reached out to a number of of actors and, no and, no and then we were also kind of keeping our fingers crossed that maybe they Okay, Peter Davison was this year, and maybe they have asked Sylvester for another year, or asked, no, you know, no. anything like oh, that. No, no, write it and suggest it, yes. I, well, I definitely will. <laughs> but I know, no, no. Since, uh, Because when I'm not, when I'm doing, not doing conventions, when I'm not part of the circuit, when I'm doing one of my other, well, just when I'm doing my job, it's all my job, I have nothing to do with Doctor Who. Because I'm doing what I'm doing. I mean, you, you do King Lear. You play the fool with Ian McKellen going around the world. There's no other life. Yeah. That's the life you lead completely and totally and you're um, in that family. I did some... I mean, I did actually do a convention in, in uh, Melbourne and then one in Sydney when I was touring and I did one in Auckland in New Zealand. So I did three conventions on, as it happens, Doctor Who did impede into King Lear. Do, do any of your... Well, cast members uh, know that you step out and do the conventions. Like, is that? Oh yeah, no. There was actually there was two, there were two uh, actors in, uh, in, in in King Lear. I'd been in Doctor Who, so I got them to come to a convention in uh, New Zealand. Oh, that's awesome! Because I did, yeah, and, and in, in Australia, I got them to come along, and that was a delight for the fans as well. Because yeah, these were, pride. yeah, and also they were, you know. You know, people you, they don't expect to see, and they haven't been part of the convention circuit in, in Britain or anywhere, mm -hmm. and so they just happened to be there. And they were you did that, and they were pleased as well with Bruce, Bruce Purchase. One yes, year, didn't he, yeah. He popped by when you were there. Well, I was at the National Theatre doing um, the um, uh, the Pied Piper musical play written for me by Adrian Mitchell, and uh, we all went for a holiday. We had you know we had a long weekend, and I was doing convention, and they said, "Oh, we'll all come over." So they did. A bunch of us went over. And I introduced Bruce, and he had no idea. And I, I was on the stage, and I had no idea how into Doctor Who people really were. And I said, and now a friend of mine has come over, and it's not, this will be nice for you. Um, yeah, Bruce Purchase, and as I said, he got up onto the stage. Before he got to the center of the stage, people were going, oh, yes, the pirate, something or other, whatever he was. I don't know, he was a pirate with a half a face. And, and I mean, he was amazed, I think everyone remembered, and I was amazed. It's great. 
it, does it surprise you that it's that it has this longevity that people are really listening to it? That they only, only, it? only half an hour, ten minutes ago, I said to Sophie, we're sitting there and there's a little lull and you know, there's people signing and there's just a little moment. And I said, Sophie, can you believe it? We're still here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, it's great. You weren't you, you obviously with the work that you've been doing and consistently been doing since you left the series. You haven't been typecast. You um, so in a sense. Um, Perhaps um, you bring in new audiences to see Shakespeare that might be seen, you know, oh, I want to see Sebastian McCoy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, and that's why, I mean, you know, they were pleased to have me in it. Yeah. And I, a lot of times I get jobs, you know, and they say, oh, you, you know, you'll bring me. Is it like being like a, an ambassador? Is it, you know what I mean? Like you're, you're, you walk in the room and it's, well, that's a man who played Doctor Who. I mean, that's like a man who plays James Bond. There's only a handful of men on, in, in the world that, you know, that's, it's okay. I'm really well, it's, it's not a bastard, it's a privilege, really. It's a privilege to be in. You know, it's good. But you're treated like that, or especially in the part. I mean, you walk in a room and kids' faces light up and adults oh, yeah, know no. every line. And No, that's wonderful. And, and it's, it's really wonderful that the new generation, you know, with the new Doctor Who, is a, a whole new generation of young people of discovering Doctor Who. And, and for a long time, you know, after it kind of went into, you know, kind of, kind of stopped being made, it was just mostly adults that were fans. Oh, and I kept meeting adults at conventions. And now in, in Britain especially, there are so many children. And they know my Doctor as well, which is absolutely wonderful. Because yeah. they, they get so excited by the... The present doctors, and then they want more of it, so they go right. out and get the old doctors, the old, yeah. or the classic. I like the classic, olders, just yeah. Yeah. anyway, yeah. The, the classic ones, and um, you know, and, and they get hooked on that, and they get hooked on you. So that's a joy. That's a great joy. There's this whole new generation discovering my and our doctor and the various other, you know, Collins and Peters and Toms and everyone else's, you know, Johns. Anyway. Well, we're going to step up to some of the writers, and, and I know Stephen Moffat, who's here this weekend, is a man who wrote Time Crash with Peter Davidson, will say, hey, is there any possibility of any other uh, returning doctors for other children in need specials or, or anything like that? I think we think that's a perfect venue for, for something like that. It's a, you know, a chance to, to step in and, and revisit something, but you know, it's not encompassing on, on, some, on other projects that you're doing. Yeah. It's hardly I never saw it, because I, mean, I, uh, I was working, I couldn't see that. And I keep taping things on DVD things and never watch them. <laughs> no, I got so many tapes, and I look at them. We'll get around yeah. to it one day. Because right? well, well, it's when you finish work, you come back and you yeah. spent. You just put on something to yeah. wind you down. Mindless, yeah. mindless entertainment. <laughs> so I, you know, I watch me, and then uh, <laughs> and then I go to bed. I don't. But anyway. Well, again, we want to thank you yes. for, for spending a little bit of time. We know you've, been, you've had a very busy whirlwind weekend this weekend. with it's easy for you to say. <laughs> whirlwind weekend. Whirlwind weekend. Wind. I'm a jock on Podshop. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time. Pleasure. Really thank appreciate you. it. Okay. Hey, it was great having Sylvester McCoy back on our show again. And I do have to apologize for the, that GSM interference noise you were hearing, that, that annoying sounds that was coming from one of the uh, mobile phones. Usually when we're recording, when we're doing studio recordings here, 
uh, for Doctor Who Podshock, we turn off our phones. Uh, yes, I always make sure I make a point of doing it. Uh, but the iPhone, I can easily put it on airplane mode. Uh, at this time when we were recording, obviously one of us, one of the three of us, or or all of us, or I'm not pointing fingers, but obviously there was a mobile phone, cell phone uh, that was um, trying to... Um, call home in the background as it was and that's when you get that interference and we were unaware of it at the time we were um as um as ken said we were using experimental equipment it's a learning process and um well anyway we just had an opportunity to catch sylvester mccoy in between uh his busy schedule there at gallifrey 19 so uh we probably didn't have a chance to frisk him and look for a phone i'm not saying it was sylvester mccoy's phone it could have just been mine or ken's but uh, apologies uh, once again um, for that um, annoying sound. And I left it in there because trying to edit out, it was over Sylvester McCoy's dialogue and we would have lost what he had to say. So once again, my apologies for that. And um, so we're going to move on. Um, both Ken and myself will give a review of Gallifrey 19. We did actually record something, um, again, going back to experimental equipment. We did record something at the show itself, and unfortunately the, the audio quality is is um, unusable. So um, we're going to do a wrap-up soon with myself and Ken about Gallifrey 19. I do want to remind you that Gallifrey 20 is coming up. It's in February. It's um, the February uh, Valentine's weekend, so you want to make sure you have plans uh, to attend Gallifrey 20. I'm sure it's going to be a great show. We're going to be there again. And um, But without further ado, we have a, a piece of feedback that we're going to use as an actual segment in our show right here. They really did a good job in, in um, reviewing what Gallifrey 19 was for them. I believe it was their first time attending. This is... Um, Keith and Kathy, their review of Gallifrey 19. They um, Thank you very much, Keith and Kathy, for putting the effort of putting together this uh, feedback, this segment. This is great. So uh, this is what they had to say about Gallifrey 19 in Los Angeles, California, February of this year, 2008. My name is Keith. And my name is Kathy. And this is our report from our first time ever at Gallifrey, Gallifrey. 2008. <laughs> well, hello there. Um, we hope you enjoy this report. Uh, again, my name is Keith. And I'm Kathy. And this is our, our first ever time at a Gallifrey convention. And uh, Wow, what a say, time. Pretty amazing, huh? Yeah, it was. It was kind of a throw yourself right into it, too. Thursday night just started off with a bang. I would have to say, yeah, we uh, we arrived a day early on Thursday just to have some fun, see the sights, do our thing, and uh, we came back from dinner. I think it was <laughs> Thursday after a long day of uh, a little partying and having a great time, and it was about 11 o'clock, and there was this, this con congregation of people. Just right outside the bar, and we looked at each other, and we were like, do you think that those are... Yeah. And so we walked up... <laughs> And the first person we met was Handsome Timmy D. Handsome Timmy D, a super nice guy, just kind of came up and he said, you guys are here for Gallifrey, aren't you? And we're, and we're like, like, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and just the fun commenced right right from the start. Um, just so many nice people there the yeah. first night. Yeah, he introduced us to so many people, like a couple of people from the forum, like Dan, Captain Jack, Face of Bo. We also met Nicole from the Audio Time team. Mm -hmm. And then a guy named Justin 
who introduced us to Steve from the restoration team. Wasn't Steve cool? He was awesome. Steve, our, our first celebrity uh, meeting yeah. at Gallifrey <laughs> and just completely awesome down-to-earth people. And and it was actually really funny because, Kathy, uh, you were speaking with him on the forum or a little bit about yeah, missing I'd episodes. Actually, yeah, I'd sent him an email, actually. So he wasn't on the forums, but I'd sent him an email because we came across some old videotapes. And I was like, hey, you know, in the email... I don't suppose that you might need some of these vi- videotapes that we have. And he was so nice. He replied back and, you know, instead of ridiculing me and saying, ah, oh, ha, ha, stupid fan, he was really nice, you know, and, and he wrote back and he said, oh, thanks so much for offering. But no, we're doing pretty good with what we have. And, you know, hey, when you're at Gallifrey, come by and say hi. And then when we said hi, he was so cool. Yeah, it was just an amazing meeting actually a couple different times just throughout the <laughs> throughout the weekend. How's it going? Drinks, all that good stuff. So. Yeah, so it was pretty cool. So, good Lord, we stayed up so late that night. Yeah, I pretty much got everything off with mm. a bang, just meeting all kinds of wonderful people. We eventually uh, ended up crawling into bed <laughs> and uh, waking up the next morning because we just uh, we didn't want to miss anything. And Yeah, but we have to say thanks to, to you, Podshot guys, because really you were spot on. We printed out the schedule beforehand. So we had that in our hot little hands before we even walked up and registered, which was really helpful because we could kind of plan out what we wanted to do. And you were so right. There's no way that you can see everything. Yeah, we kind of came to that conclusion after day one. <laughs> and just as you, uh, the Podshot crew was saying, you know, a mark of an awesome convention is just, boy, I've, I missed so much good stuff. Yeah. But, <laughs> but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but we decided to, after registering to start off at the dealer's room, we bought a lot of stuff. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Some special gems there. There was um, a wonderful vendor there. He was selling... His personal collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he actually had a lot of uh, classic Who stuff. And Keith, you picked up this amazing Tom Baker doll. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, 70s uh, Tom Baker doll still packaged up. And yeah, I walked by cool. it once and then came back and I was like, there's no way I'm leaving this here. <laughs> it's coming home with me for sure. Yeah. And then we turned around and we saw who was sitting in the corner but Sylvester McCoy. Yep. And his son, Sam. And his son, Sam. Oh, very, very nice guy, too. And they were just kind of hanging out in the corner. And we looked at each other, and we actually were doubting it for a second. We are like, is that? It is. Mm-hmm. And it was so strange because it wasn't a part of the schedule. So it's kind of something to watch out for because they just decided at the last minute to set up. So he was over there doing autographs. So mm-hmm. within the first half hour of being at the convention, we're able to talk to Sylvester McCoy, meet his son, Sam, and you know, get a really cool autograph going on right away. Excellent, yeah. Sam was Sam was awesome, and Sylvester was just an amazing, amazing guy. And one thing I'm you can take away right from Gallifrey is just the accessibility. Yeah, I believe of everybody. It's not yeah. no uh, no barriers, no closed doors. Everyone just mm-hmm. very respectful and yeah. And it was nice. just so cool to be like right up front. So at that point, um, we had decided to take our stuff up to the room and drop it off, and then we kind of <laughs> load needed, one. Yeah, load one. <laughs> Then we kind of needed to go over and have a Bloody Mary or two. <laughs> and um, so that's where we met a couple of really cool guys, Chris and Carrie. These two folks were just amazing. It was early in the early in the morning, I guess you could say early for Gallifrey. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, boy, we just looked over and just kind of shed a smile on these guys. They were so amazingly nice. They're from the UK. Yeah, they actually run the Regenerations over in Swansea. And we didn't know that at the time. There were just a couple of really cool guys we got to talking and stuff. And then, you know, we had to run up because we wanted to hit the autograph session. So, um, you know, we basically just said hello at that point, but we ran into them so many more times over the weekend too. But um, then we we ran up and we were um, wanting to get in line for autograph. Yeah, we just caught the tail end of that, and the, the staff was so nice to let us in at the very, 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 very last, last second here. We were like, gosh, this, 
trying to knock out some. Uh, our plan was to kind of get some of the autograph sessions done first, so that yeah. way we could hit the panels and not kind of stress about mm-hmm. wanting to meet you know so many different people. So many props for for them for letting us yes. in. Yes, <laughs> that was very cool. <laughs> Yeah, especially along with that first autograph session there too. Just again, the the special guests there were so nice. Um, very, very touching, moving moments. You know, there's actually one really cool where we met up with Rob Sherman there. Just, yeah, and got to talk to him just for a minute because we were at the, kind of at the end of the line. Yeah, and the way that they had it set up was they had everybody who was doing the autographs on one side of the table, and then on the table you can put down what you wanted for them to autograph, and then you just kind of moved assembly line down the line. And we ran into Rob Sherman and we're like, okay, wow, you know, we know that you're a writer for Doctor Who, but uh, which episodes did you do? And then immediately I was like Dalek and then it was just like, oh boy, the the light bulb went on. It was like, (laughs) oh, and just, it was really nice to just hear his, his thoughts on writing the episode and how much Kathy and I loved the episode. And it was he felt genuinely moved by that, which was really cool. It was just yeah. really awesome. <laughs> and it was so funny, too, because, you know, you do, you get the impression, oh, they must hear this all day. <laughs> but I think he'd even said, oh, yeah, we never get tired as writers of hearing about people enjoying what we do. So that was cool, too. Yeah, just just amazingly awesome. I think uh, from there, <laughs> just a whirlwind looking back at this, we moved on quickly to the uh, Sylvester McCoy and Sophie interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pretty cool. They had it set up um, in a different format, which was nice. It was in the big ballroom area, so a lot of people could fit in there, and they had it set up with a numbering system. It was really neat. It was a kind of a different type of an interview. They were saving kind of the doctor ears for the day for Saturday. This was more of just a really fun, how are you doing type of interview, and they had it set up to where they had these random questions, and the audience would pick a number, and then that number would just correlate to the question, mm-hmm. such as, uh, what was your worst restaurant experience? And Yeah, and, and they had a question, too, you know, that they asked of Sylvester, which was funny, which was, well, what was a childhood toy uh, that was your favorite toy from childhood that you still have? And he looked down at his lap. And then everybody paused and started laughing once they figured it out. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> good, good stuff. Just great, great questions. Good fun. And you could just see the the smiles on everybody's faces. There was. Yeah, a good way to kick everything off, I guess. Because then from that, um, it pretty much went into the opening ceremonies. Yeah, there was a little, a small little break there. I think we caught a, a quick uh, Bloody Mary and we chatted with more people. And just, we got a whole friends list here. It's just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> just so nice. We did. Um, we made it back up for opening ceremonies, which was pretty, pretty intense. I mean, very, very passionate people. And Sean Lyons, who is the person who's put, you know, so much heart and soul into the whole convention, got up there, introduced everybody, had a fun little thing. It was kind of quick and like he says, intense, where they lined everybody up, said hello, greeted everybody. And then, you know, just kind of talked about some of the announcements for the weekend. One of the announcements. Special, special yeah. guest. Who did we have? Joel from MST3K. Yeah, coming out for the next day when uh, we'd already planned on attending the panel. But now we became rather rabid about it and wanted to make sure that we were going to be there. And so it was quick, you know, nice little intro and everything. And then they just, you know, released everybody. That night they had a whole bunch of programming going on that was not involved with any panelists. But um, it was awful fun stuff. Like they had the masquerade going on, which was kind of a costume presentation. 
they were going to do a showing mm-hmm. of uh, Voyage of the Damned. Voyage of the Damned, which I was so sad. <laughs> I really wanted to see it, but I, at that point, we wanted to rest and really get up and have a full, be fully charged for Saturday because that's where things were really going to kick off. Yeah, we we did want to go and see it, but we did. We we took a nap because we were having so much stuff, and it just ended up ending the whole day. So. The next day was great. Oh, speaking real quick, too, there were two winners of the uh, two wonderful folks that we met that actually won the costume contest. They did the Cassandra. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can't really not mention the Cassandra. Um, they met Tan Brian, mm-hmm. and they were fabulous. We'd met them earlier in the day. In the during elevator. One of the, yeah, in the <laughs> elevator. <laughs> and uh, they had this fabulous mock-up of Cassandra from the New Earth episode. Um, the bit of skin for anybody who might not remember exactly, but they were dressed up as the technicians, the moisturizing technicians. And they were so good that people were, um, the next day when they were coming through on Saturday, they were actually stopped multiple times down the hallway so that people could get their picture taken. <laughs> and they were told, oh, I can't remember by whom, that their Cassandra was a lot sturdier than the actual yes. one used in the episode. I think it might have been Sean Gall- uh, Gallagher. Yeah, they were they were both just such fun people. We ran and we we actually got to we had a lot of fun with them and there's more to come on that. But oh yeah. Just, yeah, more Saturday just programming. More wonderful them. folks that that you meet at Gallifrey. Everyone was just awesome. But let's just jump right into Saturday. Um we made darn sure we were gonna yes. hit the blank commentary and I believe we were second in line. Yeah, we <laughs> we were standing by the door, frothing at the mouth, and we sat in the front row. I actually sat right next to the projector, and then on the other side of the projector was Stephen Moffat. And man, oh man, can this man commentate? <laughs> yeah, do do not miss a commentary no. um, if you go to to another Gallifrey. Anybody out there listening, mm-hmm. especially out with Stephen Moffat, the the blank commentary, I, it was hysterical. I yeah. couldn't stop laughing. I mean. So- it was pretty amazing. We'll, we'll say we'll save all that for uh, for for somebody else's experience. Yeah, yeah. But essentially, the good news is is that this commentary was put in a small room this year. Mm-hmm. All of the commentaries were, but so far on the forums, they have confirmed that for next year they're going to put it in the main ballroom area because mm-hmm. they are so popular, and so that that way more people can enjoy. Because they actually had to turn around, um, turn away people. Yeah. So we ran from that boy. That was just that was just so much fun. And I think at uh, that point, what did we do? We, we were at the end of the Battlestar Galactica yes. forum, which was kind of fun. But one of the side things is that some of these smaller rooms were not mic'd, And so we were standing in the back and couldn't really hear very well. But what we could hear was great. They did a lot of good um, conversation. I think James Moran was in that one. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was kind of just a quick Doctor Who break and then hearing the perspective a little bit on the Battlestar Galactica was really neat. And then poking some fun at the old series. Yeah, you look back at it and you Mm -hmm. either love it or you just... Or you don't. (laughs) I remember trying to give that another go. You and I did a couple of years ago and it just wasn't feeling quite the same. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, there's been such a break between the, the whole thing now too, but... At that point, that ended, and then we got to sit down like right away for the MST3K, which was awesome. Thanks, yeah. thanks for uh, that. Was that was just you know thanks to the Gallifrey group for putting that mm-hmm. little extra added bonus in there. Seeing yeah, I think Joel. it was Dr. Bloomberg who actually mm-hmm. had arranged everything. Now he, I, we hadn't mentioned this yet, but he had actually Dr. Bloomberg had actually recreated the robots. So he had a crow, gypsy, and a Tom Servo over in the art room. We'd already taken our pictures by it. But um, at this point, he was also the one to help kind of coordinate getting these guys in. So Joel Hodgson and Josh were there. And Mm -hmm. it was a great panel, really quick, packed the rafters. And then from there, we went straight over to the autograph 
round. Yes, where they did have a, a limited edition run of their first new cinematic Titanic yeah. DVD, which we got signed, got to meet them, picked mm-hmm. one up for one of our good friends. So that, that was a nice extra yeah. added bonus. Yeah, and then we happened to talk to Bob May, who was sitting right around the way. Bob May, now he's like an icon there. Yeah. For, he's been at all of the Gallifreys, I believe, except for last year was the only one. Oh, and was it? He was just like, like welcome to the family. Super, yeah. super nice guy. And for those of you who don't know, Bob May was the robot in Lost in Space. Yeah, super, super awesome guy. And just the staff there. And just to kind of quickly elaborate on that, in the dealer's room, too, all the dealers were were incredibly nice. Oh, yeah. And just able to answer your questions on which big finish audio should I (laughs) I get, uh, which... Yeah, well, any of that type of thing, because we, you know, we had not yet listened to any of the audios, mm-hmm. so we were able to ask people all sorts of questions. Yes, yeah, a whole other realm of Doctor Who that, uh, that is just <laughs> waiting to be discovered. Yeah, it keeps going on. <laughs> we've we've been longtime fans. My last convention was I was. 86? 1986. I was 12 mm-hmm. years old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, JNT, and just it was that was just such a fun time. Then there was just this long period where we just. Yeah, just mm-hmm. our fans and enjoy the show and stuff. And you kind of have this last minute, uh, or in our case anyway, plan to go ahead and do Gallifrey. And then once you're there, you don't know what to expect, but it really just sucks you in. Yep, we've had the Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, we're lifers now. That's right. So uh, after that, we went to lunch, actually. and yes, um, lunch. What was lunch? Yeah, we oh, didn't eat. <laughs> yeah, we hardly ever ate. I mean, it really is such a whirlwind. You end up doing just so much. And Who did we meet at lunch? There was John. a real nice fan. Yeah, yeah. John, we were, Kathy, Kathy and I, we were just sitting, having, you know, enjoying a quick lunch. We're like, okay, we got to get to the Sylvester interview. Quick, wolf this down. Mm-hmm. Another beer, Bloody Mary, your choice of drink. And <laughs> yeah. there's a real nice guy. You could just see Dr. Who fans walking in all over the place. And one gentleman just walked in we're like hey come sit down yep come and sit down join us and that was pretty prevalent throughout the whole weekend too is it's just this constant you look across at people wandering through this hotel and you just feel this immediate kinship with people Mm -hmm. because you have this basis you know this this uh, kindred spirit type of thing happening definitely yeah his name was john keefe so that was fun i I have never met another person with the same spelling as my name keefe so that was kind of (laughs) cool yeah I have to say here real quick, we originally intended this to be about, oh, five minutes, but um, hopefully this is okay with you guys here because we still got another day and a half to go. Yeah, sorry. There's, But this is just kind of indicative of the whole experience. There's just so much stuff to go through. We um Okay, so after that, we had our quick lunch, and then we hit up to the Sylvester McCoy interview, which was mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic. Um, general, with this one here, was just, again, more just great good questions not how are you doing that type of thing really well thought out questions audience participation yeah kind of getting an update on where he is in his career what what he's been up to like he just recently finished doing king lear and uh so that was kind of cool to go through that and at that point there was a bit of a break yes just a quick break um there was a it was between i believe five, i'm gonna take a guess between five thirty and we wanted to be back by eight thirty to see mysterious theater yes. of uh silver nemesis, nemesis which was awesome but this there was a real highlight for for you and i it was really special we were waiting to be picked up by our friends to go for dinner and we were just kind of you know just enjoying our enjoying our each other's company and yeah we were just kind of hanging out in front of the hotel and we we're just kind of standing there it believe it or not california is not always sunny and warm and at this particular time it was a bit windy and a little bit chilly so we're kind of huddled together and uh, sophie aldred comes walking by and she just looks at us and he goes you look so happy and we had that little thrill, that little moment of, aww. Yes, aww. aww. <laughs> <laughs> that was really sweet. That was just yeah. really nice. Just 
And it's, it's just mm-hmm. as representative of who she is because all throughout the weekend, she was really sweet to people. Mm-hmm. And she's just very open. People tend to greet her like an old, old friend, and she just rolls with it. You know, so that was kind of fun and definitely a nice little segue into going out to dinner with some old friends. And then we came back and caught the Mysterious Theater, which was fabulous. That was awesome. I remember yeah. them all sitting up there uh, getting <laughs> ready to do the commentary. And Sean looked like he, he had some other stuff that he had yeah. to take care of. And his departure from when the show kicked on was just a gut roll. I remember it kicking on. And Silver Nemesis, he's like, oh, hell no. I'm <laughs> yeah, it's not. Like, I'm out. <laughs> Threw the mic up. He's like, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> he goes he goes rushing off to do more con stuff and then they con- convened with everything and it's, that was fun it's great to have that live feel to it it was fun that whole the whole staff did such a fantastic job with mm-hmm. uh, silver nemesis and had a little q and a afterwards which was fantastic and i believe after that it was like we're we're on our fifth win we're going to keep going we we came out and we ran into steve again yeah. from the time team yeah so steve from the time team one thing and a bunch of people actually did this is you would run into some of the guests the special guests there and they would look at you and they'd be like are you having a good time are you enjoying yourself well steve was so sweet about that he was constantly introducing us to friends of his um you know telling us what's going on with him. And so he and a group of people were kind of hanging out in little couch areas outside of the main ballrooms. He invited us to come over and have a seat. So we were sitting there babbling a little bit. And he said, well, you absolutely have to go to the Buffy sing-along. And yes, the Buffy sing-along was, that was an, that was an experience. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> that was pretty fun. Shut up, Don. <laughs> yeah, shut up, Don, in various... Uh, Yes, uh, variations. In variations of, <laughs> yes, Don, please be quiet. But highly recommend that for, for a good, almost... Almost a night capper, but believe it or not, after that, then there, was more. there is a whole <laughs> slew of things happening. Um, they had the disco, which was really cool. Just seeing some funny people doing their thing. Um, the highlight of that night was room 110. There was a... Yeah, they have this room set aside where they have parties. Well, the night before was Evil Genius's party. Mm-hmm. And we missed out on that because we were unconscious. Yes. But this <laughs> night, <laughs> there was the Daleks in Manhattan party. Oh, it was amazing. They had, they had Dalekanium, they had Dalek yeah. cookies, and the hosts yeah, were so nice. They were so cool. They had this open bar thing where, you know, you just do a little donation type of deal. There's a wonderful lady... Um, I think her name was Joan, was mixing up drinks and everything for everybody. Mm-hmm. And it was just everybody running in there. Yep. I mean, and then we met, we ran into. Yeah, met Tim Bryan again. Again, met Tim Bryan. Those guys and were awesome. <laughs> it was so funny because over, and this is kind of the surreal aspect of how things can sometimes morph, is we're sitting there hanging out with them. We're meeting new friends, nibbling on little Dalek cookies. And you look over in the corner and there's Rob Sherman mm-hmm. hanging out with people. And he's got some kind of like shock thing. And so pretty soon it turns into this like party wide <laughs> passing yeah. the shock. So everybody's linking hands and then they're zip zapping everybody. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of this odd type of moment. But for some reason, just kind of fit in. It was OK. Yep. That basically the night went on for a very, very long time. Cartwheels, all kinds of craziness. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) There's cartwheels. I mean, at one point, you know, some people were like searching out other parties and other rooms. Yes. Going to different floors, checking things out. There's uh, pool parties. There's even outside of the Champs Bar. So lots of hanging out there. Well, moving right along to now our 20-minute podcast (laughs) stuff here. Hope this is cool. Uh, We jumped into Sunday, and guess what was at 11 o'clock? Nothing other than Dr. Upacha. Ah, yes, that's right. Good way to start the day. Yes, it was very cool getting to see you guys and just listen to all the commentary. Yeah, yeah. Listening to everything live was so much fun, and Paul Cornell came on, so that was really cool, too. Nice little quick thing, and everybody was kind of standing up there. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely, uh, just good times. Today's uh, Sunday, Earth today, but Sunday was all about basically just staying in the new Earth room because that's where a lot of events yeah, were going. Was- so we just had our schedule. We're like, I think we're going to be parked here for a good majority of the day. <laughs> we they had the doctor, uh, the seventh doctor roundtable era that was following Podshock, which was mm-hmm. really neat. Yeah, that was cool. And then after that, we kind of felt a little bit. Um, I don't know, like some con guilt. We kind of felt like, you know, it was such a great event. We wanted to help out in whatever way we could. So yeah. we volunteered. Yeah, which was really fun. Highly recommended. That was Big Ed, I think. Yeah, yeah, Big, yeah, Big Ed, Ed. Huge guy, just an awesome guy. And mm-hmm. uh, he was uh, running, I believe, all the volunteer yeah. information. And we, you know, just like with everybody, we talked to him all weekend. We're like, hey, is there anything we can do for this mm-hmm. this slot of time just to help you out? So we got to do a little volunteering, which which was cool and kind of felt good, you know. Yeah, you felt like we'd kind of done our part and everything. And then at that point, Keith was finishing up the volunteering stuff. And then I ran up because I wanted to get a couple of things for the writer's autograph session to sign. And I was lucky enough that, as we'd mentioned before, the dealers are really knowledgeable. And one of them had pointed me to the storybook 2007 that Stephen Moffat had a um, article in because we were a little bit unprepared. We didn't think to bring things for people to sign. And we're going to change that for next year. We're going to make sure to bring things, uh, you know, whatever you've got, comics, whatever it is, you know, bring it if you want to have somebody sign it. Mm -hmm. So I ran up to the room, grabbed that, stood in line, got the signatures. So cool. I mean, good Lord, James Morin. What a sweetheart. He's the one who has written the new Pompeii episode that's coming out in April um, for the new Doctor Who. He wrote The Sleeper for mm-hmm. Torchwood and Down to Earth. Very sweet, sweet guy. Nice. Yep. Yeah. Definitely very cool. Yeah. Moving. Dragonfire, right? Yes. That was yeah. that was what we were really excited for Dragonfire. It looks like, unfortunately, there was a VCR snafu. Not a big deal. So they moved right along and then went to uh, Ghost. Ghostlight was the yeah. live commentary, which... Which I don't is think, cool. I don't think I'm. I still don't understand that episode. I've, I've seen <laughs> I, it like five times. I, I kind of got it, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I personally, I like the episode. It kind of, you know, it's it's kind of grooves with mm-hmm. some things that I find interesting. So, you know, I, I thought it was fun to hear the commentary and everything, but I was a little bummed out because I was looking forward to Dragon Fire. But that's okay. We, we that's imp- okay. improvise, move along. Yeah. I think during uh, just the end of that, I made one final sweep of the dealer's room, which, by the way, when you go there the first day on Friday, it is just Mm -hmm. packed full of merch. And no kidding, on the end of the day, I mean, there is not much left. So if you're looking for a goodie, highly recommend get there day one. Pick it up. (laughs) Uh, Yes. And we made one mistake where we were looking at the radio controlled canine at one point (laughs) and we turned to each other. I don't know. Should we get it? I think so. Should we? And what happened? No, it was gone, and it was the only one there. Yeah. <laughs> also, like a big collector of the toys, there was actually one Rose Tyler figure from Series 1 that there was only one of those there, so I managed to snag that one. Too. Yeah, and <laughs> it's funny, you know, because if, if you collect anything, of course, you know, that's going to be something that you're going to come away with from this weekend thinking, great. Yeah. Well, closing up here, yeah, they had the year in review after Dragonfire, which was really neat getting to see a little TV from the UK on some of the stuff we don't actually get to see. Yeah, certain interviews, things like that. And then they did closing ceremonies. Which was really cool. Got to bring the guests up, wibbly wobbly. (laughs) Timey wimey. Yep, closing Uh down and... And then dinner at Latitudes. Yep, dinner at Latitudes. And that's it's just like when you walked in there, it was like the celebrity fun guest dinner house. I mean, everybody's just having a great time. Mm-hmm. And then guess who we met there again? Yeah, Chris and Carrie. So we hung out with them and started talking with them a bit. Yeah, I can't, can't say enough about those two guys. They were just really 
so nice to us, and we just yeah, hung out. Sweet. And we played, you know, had drinks with them all night, and the, mm-hmm. the doctor was there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Sylvester Mr. Mr. and his son Sam came over, <laughs> and then Stephen Moffat was um, hanging out there too, and. Uh, you know, we had a great time just kind of hanging and then, absolutely. And yeah. the party the night away with just with everybody there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know. we got booted out of latitudes. Yeah, we closed latitudes <laughs> down. <laughs> and then we moved over to Champs, which was a lot of fun because, you know, at that point, it's really the closing, the real closing ceremonies come at about 11, 12 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. At this point, everybody's just socially hanging out, having a good time, talking with each other, saying their goodbyes. Yeah. And yeah, so it, we hung out with. Uh, Sylvester and Sam and Chris and Carrie, and then we got this wonderful, wonderful thing happening there at the um, at the table where everybody started coming in and saying goodbye. Really nice to meet you, handsome Timmy D. And then our one other real good friend we met there, Nicole. Yeah, part of the audio time team where they do live commentary on the on the audios, and she was just super sweet. Yeah, she had a good a good time that weekend because she'd put together an actual impromptu audio time team at the con. Mm -hmm. So that was really exciting for us. She had Simon and uh, Lisa Bowerman and then also Paul Cornell all to help them out. Yeah, so that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, very good job. And we got to say goodbye to everybody, you Mm -hmm. know, both Dan's, um, and then Big Ed and Handsome Timmy D and Anne, uh, who's another volunteer. So cool. Yeah, man, boy. I mean, it, it's just, yeah, it was just, it was a whirlwind of a weekend. We didn't want it to end. And, you know, finally, unfortunately, it did fly back home. And the Kool Aid's still in the system two weeks past here. Um, mm-hmm. We were really inspired when we came back. We wanted to send something to the Pod Shock team, which, by the way, you know, just love the Pod Shocks. And we just recently got turned on to them, believe it or not. So it's amazing uh, what you guys do. So we really appreciate it. And we hope you enjoy this and hopefully some fans. Next year that I've never been to the con, I mean, don't well, miss yeah. it. <laughs> don't miss it. If if it if there's any way for you to go, you're not going to regret it, that's for sure. And especially next year, they're talking about coordinating um, a couple of guests from the new series as well, which has been a little bit, you know, lacking. And so they're going to work on that for next year. Mm-hmm. And um, it's going to be exciting to see who they've got next year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think you can get anybody from until once they're finished. Right. Right, but that's the yeah, the main the main characters and everything. So once the once the guest spot happens yeah. and then that's wrapped up, then they can go ahead and do conventions. Well perfect. So, well, yeah. once again we'll we'll wind up this originally thought to be oh five minute <laughs> uh-huh. review to now thirty minutes. Um again, thanks again for you know that, that episode uh Pod Shock did. I think it was one oh two was the pre Gallifrey. Yeah, that was the pre Gallifrey, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, very isn't helpful. that sad? Yeah, it's, it's like that. That was really a huge part of us being able to enjoy the weekend was being prepared. So thanks, guys. Well, once again, many cheers to the Podshot crew, everybody at Gallifrey for putting it on, and we will yep. be there next year for sure. Cheers, have a good one. Thank you, Kathy and Keith. That was great. That's a great piece of feedback there. It's always good to get another perspective of an event that you were already at and seeing it from um, from another angle. So thank you and kudos for that. A nice um, review there. Uh, we're at the midway point between last year's Gallifrey. Well, it's still this year's. <laughs> this year's uh, Gallifrey 19 and next year's Gallifrey 20, which is, um, as I said, we're sort of like um, at the half point, halfway point right now. So uh, it's Valentine's weekend of February of 2009, so start making your plans. I know Ken and I are making our plans. We're, we're, we are back again. They invited Dr. Hupachok to be 
um, there on stage once again, and we're excited about that. And we're hoping that it won't be just myself and, and Ken and, and Mike Duran. We're hoping that um, this year we'll have none other than James Norton with us. So that would be a great addition to have all three of us uh, live on stage at Gallifrey 20, making an extra special event. But it's even more special because you, our listeners, are there, and that's always important. So um, once again, Kathy, Keith, thank you so much. We're looking forward to meeting you up once again next year at Gallifrey 20. Thanks for the excellent review. And now we're going to... Um, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Doth Skeptical's review of the Ark. Are you the Doctor? Doctor Who. I can't decide whether you should live or die, or you'll probably go to heaven. Please don't hang your head and cry, no wonder why. My heart feels dead inside, it's cold and hard and petrified, like the doors and clothes flies, we're going. Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Are you looking for a show that can provide you information on the newest Doctor Who DVDs that are coming out? It's astounding. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its... Well, you just come to the right place. Hello, I'm your host, Robert Wentz, and I do the Doctor Who review Today show and um, stop on in check us out we'll be here Saturday mornings 1 a.m. right after the midnight hour and please this is an international podcast we want to get everybody in on the news and information and reviews of the Doctor Who DVD For the new ones who just um, watched this new series, um, go ahead and check out the um, other doctors that appeared in the classics. So, be sure to check out Doctor Who Review Today and or at TalkShoe.com or you can check us out at iTunes. There's still no official news as to the exact nature of the police operation yesterday at Ackley House. Hello? Oh, ah, uh, hello. I, I was wondering if that you'd mind... That fellow on floor? Um... Is he dead? Ah, uh, yes. I'm Charlie. What are you shouting for? Well, I appear to be handcuffed to this bed. Oh, yeah. He was strangled, and now he's dead. All very straightforward. Oh, let's see what we can do about that. No, she's still out of it. What if she doesn't come round? Mr. Slater. You see, I've been very worried about something. I've been worried about you talking. D.I. Menzies, isn't your solicitor here yet? Oh, I don't need one. Yeah, the money's plenty. I just don't want to hear too long, that's all. There are two ways you can react to this. You can lock me away and pretend it's all nonsense and go back to your life, or you can let me help you solve it. My name's Charlie. My name's Sam. 
Please don't hang up. I've just been calling all over the building. People keep hanging up on me. They think I'm messing about. Help me. What is it? What's wrong? The local residents' association is reporting an abnormally high incidence of electrical and telephone line faults. I was expecting someone else. Someone else? The origin of the Monoids is obscure. Battle for their existence. The Earth also is dying. We have left it for the last time. On a trip across the universe. We've known for some time of the journey of the vessel you call the Ark. But the Doctor's new companion. It's all my fault. If I'd known it was going to be like this, I'd never have come. Threatens to stop. Them. Cold. Oh, do blow your nose, child! Then you'll lose the place! Come on, kids, get your flu shots. It's time to go for a ride on the ark. This week on the Skeptical Diaries. To take them away to the security kitchen and then call a grand council. This is London. Hi kids, I'm Darth Skeptical, and like you, I'm buzzing on the current Series 3 after the fabulous opening episode, Smith & Jones. So it seems altogether right and proper that we should go back to 1966 and look at the first Series 3. It was a rocky time in Doctor Who history, with the original producer leaving to be supplanted by not one, but two new producers before the year ended. The TARDIS was seemingly fitted with revolving doors. More companions came and left in this season than any other. No fewer than six different actors were employed as companions. Seven if you count long-running guest star Gene Marsh. William Hartnell was growing less healthy and more embroiled in office politics, and there was a growing pressure to see him dismissed as the doctor, even though no one yet knew what that would mean to the future of the program. The most obvious feature of the third season was the 12-week epic, The Daleks' Master Plan, made at double length merely on the whim of a BBC executive whose kids loved the Daleks. Trying to mount a show for that long had proven grueling, and it, along with a failed battle to oust William Hartnell, had left Verity Lambert's successor, John Wiles, exhausted. Following Master Plan, he had made up his mind to quit, but he still had two stories left in him. 
both of which were notable for various reasons. First up was the Massacre, sometimes known as the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. Beyond being a damn good story, it's notable for being, paradoxically, the only adventure in the whole of the William Hartnell era to have a single companion, then briefly, yet significantly, no companions, and finally, two companions. It achieved this unusual feat by whisking Dodo into the TARDIS only at the story's end, after Stephen had apparently departed the series. Confused? Well, it's an iTunes store click away. Just search for the phrase, Adventures in History. Suffice it to say, for the moment, that the Doctor and Stephen, having concluded their adventure with Anne Chaplet in 16th century France, materialized the TARDIS in modern England, where Dodo Chaplet, presumably, but illogically, a distant relative of Anne's, happens upon the Doctor's police box, thinking it was a metropolitan police box. Stephen, having apparently left the Doctor for good, nevertheless rushes back on board, tells the Doctor that actual police are on the way toward the TARDIS, and the Doctor makes an emergency takeoff to avoid entanglements with the police. In other words, Dodo gets kidnapped, and her introduction gets about five seconds more thought from the writers than her departure in the War Machines. And this is where the story of the arc begins, John Wiles' time as producer ends, and writer Paul Erickson says hi and goodbye to the notion that Doctor Who is actually a science fiction show. Warning, if you, your family, or even your pets have never seen this serial, turn back now. Neither the Gallifrey Embassy or Outpost Gallifrey will accept responsibility for spoiling the story for you. Speaking only of plot, the Ark is a fairly simple story. The TARDIS crew lands on a ship carrying two species to a new home, Refuses too. Humans are in charge of the journey, but they brought along some vaguely reptilian creatures called monoids. Ostensibly, the mute monoids, who can only communicate with humans through sign language, are the inferior race, serving their apparently benign masters as, not quite, slaves. As the TARDIS crew gets acquainted with the ARC crew, they get shown around a bit. On prominent display is a massive statue under construction. This statue will take all of the vessel's 700-year trip to complete, and represents a human carrying the Earth in his hands. This meet-and-greet, though, is brought to an abrupt end. Do you realize what this means, dear boy? What's all the fuss about? The man's called Dodo's cold, that's all. Oh, oh! These people, this generation, have never experienced the common cold. For the simple reason it was wiped out many generations ago before they were born. They have no resistance to it. I don't quite know, I don't know. But it might be fatal. We shall be to blame. Yes, it's all our fault, and I should have foreseen it. Dodo's cold thus sweeps through the Ark like wildfire. The humans immediately put the three time travelers into custody, believing them responsible for a kind of eco-terrorism. Stephen, himself from Dodo's future, begins to take ill, but nevertheless stands trial, hoping to mount a defense that will buy the doctor time to come up with a cure. We can cope with all things known to the 57th segment of Earth life, but not with strange diseases brought by you as agents of the intelligences that inhabit refuses. You still on about that? 
I've told you before, we know nothing of that planet. My instinct, every fiber of my being tells me differently. That, unfortunately, tells me only one thing. What's that? That the nature of man, even in this day and age, hasn't altered at all. You still fear the unknown, like everyone else before you. His impassioned defense works in the end, and the doctor is allowed to, well, be a doctor. There's anything we can do to help, Doctor? Yes, cover him. We must keep him warm at once. Warm? But he's already sweating with the fever in the same way that my father... My dear young lady, please do as you're told. Now, where is that other young woman I want? Here I am, Doctor. Oh, good. Now, look here. Go to the TARDIS and bring these things back will for me, do... will you? Yes, certainly. Fine, fine. How will I know where to find them? Well, open your eyes, my dear child. Otherwise, you, you won't be any use to me, will you? Okay. <laughs> what did you say? I said okay. Yes, I thought you did. Now, once this crisis is over, I am going to teach you to speak English. The cure works, order is apparently restored, and the TARDIS crew are allowed to leave. And there it seems like the story ends. But when the TARDIS rematerializes, the three find themselves back on the Ark. This time, though, they are at the very end of the journey. The Ark is now in orbit of Refuses 2, just preparing to make its landing after a 700-year trip. Alarmingly, the statue has been completed, but at the summit of its human body is the head of a monoid. As it turns out, the doctor's cure had a much longer lasting impact than he might have thought. And what do you mean by that? Hmm? You controlled the immediate impact of the fever, but a mutation of it developed later on that sapped the will of the humans. You mean it was our fault that you took over because of the fever? In part. There were other reasons? The main reason was the Guardians themselves. They were a simple people. They actually encouraged the research from which we developed our voice boxes and heat bulbs. They were totally unprepared for the conflict when it came. The Monoids, now able to talk through voice boxes, are scheming to take over Refuses 2. They plan to evacuate only themselves from the Ark, eradicate any sentient life which may exist on the planet, then blow up the Ark with all the human hands on board. What they and the Doctor discover on Refuses, though, is shocking. Following solar flares, the Refusions have become invisible and extremely powerful. They appear to have almost godlike powers of telekinesis. While they're eager to have new residents on the planet, they very much want them on their terms. Peace is a requirement, and right now, the Ark's inhabitants certainly don't qualify. Responding to the Doctor's intelligence, they give a 24-hour deadline for the monoids and humans to solve their political squabble one way or the other. The lead monoid believes this will happen once a bomb he's hidden on the Ark goes off. But another monoid, weary of his leader's warring ambition, leads a revolt. In the end, the monoids divide into camps and go to war significantly thinning the monoid ranks. The crisis hasn't yet been averted though, a bomb still ticking away aboard the Ark. Perhaps recognizing that his terms have almost been met, the Refusion goes up to the Ark and dispatches the bomb, clearing the way for Earth colonization. Satisfied that he has righted the wrong his crew visited upon the natural progress of history, the Doctor takes off in the TARDIS to lead the humans, monoids, and Refusions to their new alliance. Once on board the TARDIS, the Doctor begins to fade away in front of Stephen and Dodo's surprised eyes. 
Neither they nor the audience is sure if the doctor has somehow been affected by the invisible effusions or some other force. Let's be honest from the outset. The Ark is a story which is universally criticized for one thing or another. If it's not the, I swear to God, overacting of Monoid number one, it's the sluggish pacing. For me, though, the biggest problem with the story is Dodo. There has never been a character so neatly summed up by her name. Particularly in light of Smith and Jones, Dodo's uselessness is even more profound, where Martha's introduction sees her saving not only the human race, but the Doctor's life. Dodo's debut has her nearly sending not one, but two species to a premature demise. More offensively, she's imbued with very little remorse over the event by either writer Paul Erickson or actress Jackie Lane. Though the arc definitely underperforms, it's also not quite damned. Sitting low in the Doctor Who dynamic ranking site, it has been just barely outside the bottom quarter of all Doctor Who stories for years, garnering a pretty fair 5.5 out of 10. Of course, internet rankings aren't statistically valid, but hey, in this instance, I'm certainly inclined to agree. Because on face value, there's nothing terrible about the story, but it's not one you'd rewatch with great enthusiasm. There aren't particularly outstanding dialogue scenes here. The monoids are so bad they're good kind of aliens. And the whole play gives off a vibe of having given greatness a peck on the cheek when all the elements were there for a full, sloppy, open-mouthed kiss. One of the greater tragedies, in fact, about the John Wilde's era on Doctor Who is that this is the one of his four stories that survives in its entirety. So, that said, why the hell should I put you through a review of mediocrity? Well, because I think one tends to learn a lot about Doctor Who when one examines a relative failure that was really trying very hard to be an out-of-the-park success. The most notable feature of the story, and in fact the reason I think this 40-year-old tale deserved a spoiler warning, is its novel use of time. There are surprisingly few Doctor Who stories wherein something the Doctor and crew did at one point in the guest star's history has a notable effect upon something that happens much later within the story's own timeline. While there are historicals, and even stories set in the future which imply that the Doctor can have an impact upon events, Face of Evil being a notable example, there are very few in which both the cause and negative effect of time travel is actually demonstrated. No More Lies is a recent audio example, but on TV, really, you only have Love and Monsters, where the Doctor's actions at one point in time have an unintended effect upon another point in time that we actually see within the scope of a single story. The number of stories in broadcast Doctor Who wherein the Doctor has to right his wrongs are very few and far between. And I think the arc is probably why. It's interesting to be sure. Indeed, the cliffhanger to part two is maybe one of the all-time best, but ultimately, that's all there is to the plot. Once the cliffhanger is explained in part three, the story has already fired off its most interesting element, and you're stuck with almost another hour of the arc, in which everything else is, by comparison, pretty dull.
I think that's why when RTD echoed the basic theme of the arc in Series 1, he broke it up into separate stories. The Doctor's history-changing mistake was thus a very slow burn. The long game begat Bad Wolf in a very similar way to how Part 2 of the arc led to Part 3. But instead of the way in which the First Doctor quickly assesses that he was responsible for the state of affairs on the arc, it takes the Ninth Doctor the better part of Bad Wolf to work it all out. This approach of stretching things out makes the Doctor's mistake have real dramatic impact. The guilt showed on the Ninth Doctor, for he had ironically dismissed Adam as a companion for minor time meddling when he was responsible for a much grander transgression himself. His messing with history, though done with the same good intentions of the First Doctor, ultimately led to the death of millions, and really, his own. But it's woven into the background of several stories, such that you don't really get it until it's all over. There's no bloody great statue looming at the end of an episode hitting you over the head with a point. Likewise, Love and Monsters has the reveal of the Tenth Doctor's involvement in Elton's youth preserved to the very end of the story, so that you're kept watching to figure out what the setup was all about. Put more simply, though it is definitely interesting to see time travel become the focus for once, the arc uses it more as a one-off narrative trick than as an element in a well-developed narrative structure. That said, it for me utterly laid to rest one of the biggest questions I had about early Doctor Who. I'm going to play something now, and I want you to think how many times you've heard something like this when watching or listening to Doctor Who. And now, a new four-part adventure starring Colin Baker in Doctor Who. I think if you've spent any time around the classic series at all, something very like that narration will have crept into your experience. Now, when I was younger and thought the TARDIS was only just big enough to house multicolored scarves, I was shocked to discover how truly long-running the show actually was. As I took baby steps into the, wait for it, Hooniverse, I was mystified by the fact that the show began its life not numbering individual episodes, but titling them. I stared in wonder at things like Doctor Who Weekly and the Target Books program guide and tried to imagine why it mattered so damn much to people whether an unearthly child described merely the first episode of the series or the first four episodes. Was Child a one-part adventure and 300,000 years BC a three-parter? And what the ever-loving universe was the tribe of gum? Well, I'm not sure that debate's actually been cleared up yet, but at least I did eventually get to see the arc and finally figure out why episode titles actually had a function. See, one of the reasons that the cliffhanger of seeing the big statue of a human figure with a monoid head works is because back then you didn't have the Radio Times TV guide or a voiceover announcer telling you how many parts were in the next adventure. All you had was an announcement of the next episode title. Thus, given the highly variable episode count on stories in the Hartnell years, you would have been very easily lulled into thinking as the plague, or what we would call today episode two, neared its end, that the story was over. Sure, it might have been a little hollow, but episodes one and two do tell a complete story, and it's not a terrible one. So those last few minutes would have been, I think, truly shocking for the program's original audience. Certainly, even when I watched it for the first time, knowing full well how many episodes there were, I moved forward to the edge of my seat for the one, and as it turned out, 
only time in the entire story. As the credits rolled, I had a quick, what the heck is going on moment, and then immediately thought of how cool it was that Doctor Who had beaten 1968's Planet of the Apes to the punch. And then I thought about it some more. Did it really beat Planet of the Apes? Well, and here I want to make it very clear I'm speculating. Yes and no. Rod Serling had completed his second draft of the script, the one that has the famous Statue of Liberty ending, by early January 1966. It's unlikely, indeed very unlikely, that Erickson would have been privy to this script prior to writing the Ark. So at least on this one element, the Ark, indeed, predates the Planet of the Apes film. But the book on which Apes was based had come out slightly before Doctor Who premiered in 1963, and I think it's probable that Erickson read it. Erickson, and by the way, if you're wondering why I'm not talking about credited co-author Leslie Scott, it's because her credit was a fake one, had made his career largely on writing B-movies and telemovies in the 1950s, most of which were crime adventure dramas, and many of which were derivative of novels or other scripts. Sadly, Erickson died without becoming an important enough writer to generate significant press coverage, so no one has ever asked him any on-the-record questions about his influences, to my knowledge, not even within Doctor Who fandom. However, given his track record, it seems reasonable to believe that he would have paid a great deal of attention to 1957's The Bridge Over the River Kwai, could likely have read the hugely prominent novel, and been inclined to read author Pierre Boulet's follow-up, Planet of the Apes. Now, the novel does not have the film's Statue of Liberty ending, so similar to the ending of Episode 2 of The Ark. But what it does have is the basic theme of a master race becoming so dependent on a slave labor class that they become easily overwhelmed by them. It's very like what happened to the humans on The Ark. Apes also has a significant romantic subtext in which the stranger to the planet of the apes tries to inspire the downtrodden humans to remember their core values and rise up against the apes. This is mirrored, to the degree possible in a children's program like Doctor Who, by Stephen's implied revolutionary romance with Venusa. Planet of the Apes also contains the notion that not all of the apes are on the same page with respect to humans, a sentiment mirrored by Monoid 4's uprising against Monoid 1. And finally, there is the nature of the journey itself. As in the Ark, the protagonist of the Apes novel is actually going to a wholly different planet. By the time he returns to the Earth, the trip has taken him a curiously coincidental 700 years. Another significant piece of speculation to make about Erickson's influences here is perhaps even more direct. Just prior to working on Doctor Who, Erickson had contributed to the new science fiction anthology series, Out of the Unknown. It was, in some ways, the British Twilight Zone. Specifically, he had adapted the William Tin short story, Time in Advance. What's interesting about this is that he would likely have worked from a collected edition of William Tin's stories, which included the story The Sickness. The Sickness has almost all the other elements of the Ark. In The Sickness, a joint U.S.-Soviet mission goes to Mars, against a backdrop of nuclear devastation should the two sides not make it to Mars peaceably. After landing planetside, one of the Soviets catches a fever and nears death. The Soviets scream bloody murder until one of the Americans also gets sick with a strange disease. The disease then spreads throughout the crew until only one person is left standing. 
Just when the bomb of nuclear war is about to go off on Earth, the fever for all the crew abates and the men emerged transformed. Like the refusions, the space travelers have evolved beyond mere humanity and now are gifted with superhuman powers such as telepathy and telekinesis. Now understand, I'm not saying that Erickson blatantly took Planet of the Apes, smashed it together with a sickness, and came up with the Ark. All of this depends upon knowing whether he at least read those two works, and we simply don't. But what we can say is that it is possible, even plausible, for him to have done so, and to have done a pastiche of them in the same way that Robert Holmes famously put a Doctor Who slant on classic horror stories. I mention all this not to mark Erickson as a plagiarist, but rather to note this as a watershed moment in the development of Doctor Who. This is an incredibly early, perhaps even the earliest, Doctor Who story in which detailed comparisons to modern literary science fiction can be made. Well, made with a straight face at least. Not only does it prefigure the move towards harder science fiction made by J&T in the 18th season, but it stands as one of the key pieces of evidence that the historicals were on their way out. Regardless of what we may today think about the quality of the massacre versus the Ark, it must be pointed out that the massacre killed the audience that had been present for most of the season. From episode 1 to 2 of the massacre, the audience dropped off by 2 million viewers, but from episode 1 to 2 of the Ark, that audience largely came back. The audience would basically hold or better itself through the Celestial Toymaker, but once the First Doctor returned to the past in The Gunfighters, Doctor Who never topped 6 million viewers again until the second story of Season 4, The Tenth Planet. What's interesting, though, is that John Wiles' successor, Ennis Lloyd, who was actually training with Wiles for the recording of this story, learned from the arc not that science fiction was the way back to rating success, but rather the monoids. He's admitted that he thought it was the monsters that were the key to Doctor Who's success, and that's why his part of the Troughton era had so damn many of them. The true lesson of the arc, though, just might have been that it was ideas that were central to gaining a wider audience. Ultimately, throwing monsters on the screen failed the second Doctor in the same way that historicals had failed the first. As J&T would later learn, focusing solely on science fiction ideas would alienate audiences too. But... For a moment, just a moment, there was this story that failed in so many regards, but yet managed to provoke a fickle audience to return to the program through the use of an idea truly ahead of its time. If the Doctor can travel in time, then he should be shown to travel in time, not just land somewhere in the past and spend the whole adventure trying to get back to the TARDIS. It's just the pity that we here, stuck in the 21st century, after we've seen Charlton Heston on the beach looking up at the Statue of Liberty, can't truly experience this story like its original audience. Still, it's cheering to note that Russell T. Davies reintroduced episode titles to the Doctor Who paradigm. While we might think that he subverts the use of episode titles by revealing which are two-parters and which not, it is fascinating to note the degree to which modern viewers are, like those who first watched the Ark, surprised by the connection between various stories. For those of us who still live in a mostly spoiler-free world, who would have expected, for instance, that Army of Ghosts and Doomsday were actually parts three and four of a four-parter beginning with Rise of the Cybermen? Likewise, after 23 subsequent seasons in which the Doctor's actions upon history were largely ignored, I certainly wouldn't have guessed at seeing the theme of the Ark become, for all intents and purposes, the theme of an entire Doctor's era.
If the ninth doctor has a motto, it might as well be Mind the Monoid. Or maybe objects in the rearview mirror are closer than they seem. See, despite Ditsy Dodo, Mop Top Monoids, and a part four that sadly descends into a standard alien shootout, Paul Erickson gave us a lot, it turns out, with his lone contribution to the series. Despite his missteps, he at least had the gumption, and the support from a defeated producer and script editor, to dream that audiences would care about an intriguing concept as much as a bug-eyed monster. And that, more than anything, is what I take away from my trip on the Ark. When all is said and done, its most memorable moment isn't a space battle, a monster that caught on with the public, or even a glib reply from a chatty doctor. It's that fabulously esoteric cliffhanger, the monoid human statue staring at us from the original Series 3, which stands most proudly at the gateway, leading directly to the current Series 3. Until next time, I'm Darth Skeptical, closing up the diaries for this podcast. Wow, Darth. <laughs> Thank you, Darth Skeptical. That was amazing. Um, I, obviously, uh, by listening to Darth's review and his comments about the Series 3 and, um, you know, Martha Jones, we know that that, that was um, actually recorded a while ago and we've just been, hadn't had a chance to, um, to play it on our show, so we do apologize for the long delay. And um, it's, um, But I, I think it still holds up very well and um, I'm sure... I'm sure you enjoyed it just as much as I did listening to it. Thank you once again, Darth. And um, speaking of holding things, and, and um, obviously this show is another ecleptic show, just like last show. Uh, it's it's you know it's good to kind of clean house and trying to get all the stuff that has um you know that that we've been meaning to put on the show and for whatever reasons running out of time and not including them and so um, they're getting on the shows now and um, you know because it's a shame we don't want any of this stuff to go to waste. So uh, we do have a, another promo, another mashup promo that our listeners have been uh, sending us uh, back last year. We did a, um, you know, an expo on promos on, do- on mashups for Doctor Who Podshock, and we have one coming up by Ron Herr. And uh, I also just wanted to comment that <clears throat> some people may not realize that we've been doing live uh, reviews of Series 4, the 2008 series we reviewed each and every episode on our live show on TalkShoe, and you can find uh, the URL to the feed for that on our site, gallifrandembassy.org or podshock.net. Both will get you to the same site. And just look on the right-hand side, the right sidebar, there's a link to the live Raw shows. Now, originally we were recording these live shows like we did previous years where we recorded them live and anyone that wanted to get them right away could listen to them roar and unedited and whatever. And then we eventually put them in post-production and polished them up and put them on the main feed. This year, it just seems like, you know, it's it was just going to be too much work and we had past shows that we were trying to pump out and... Um, so it was just going to delay us even further. So if you do want to, if you, if you haven't heard the live shows yet, uh, they, we were reviewing all of them for the 2008 series. And what we originally started doing was having two live shows. In fact, we, uh, or should I should say two reviews to 
podcasts that we would review the same story. One was delayed a few weeks to coincide with the Sci-Fi Channel. So those were much more smaller episodes, and uh, we weren't really getting the audience that we wanted, so we kind of discontinued that and just did the one review show uh, somewhere like a quarter into the series. We just stuck it, you know, just stuck with one show and uh, reviewed it as it was transmitted, you know, the day after it was transmitted from the BBC. So once again, those are all on talk show. They're all available to you. You can find them on our website, podshock.net or gallifreyandembassy.org, and um, just go to the Roar Live shows. And Because um, I think we need to go forward from here, and, and no sense um, going back and pulling out all those live shows from uh, 14 episodes. Actually, they're, they're more than 14 episodes, uh, or, or I should say 13 episodes, because um, there were a few that we did uh, doubles of for the Sci-Fi Channel audience. Anyway, so we're going to um, let me uh, play this promo, this mashup. from This is from Ron Herr. We have other mashups that we're still going to be playing in future episodes, and then we'll come back and close out the show. Thank you once again. See you on the other side. This is Colin Baker. This is Deborah Watson. This is Eugene Washington. You're listening to Doctor Who Doctor Who Podshock, presented by Outpost Gallifrey. Check us out online at gallifrey1.com or podshock.net. Also available through iTunes. Well, that's going to wrap up another Doctor Who Podshock episode. I want to thank you, thank everyone for listening and thank everyone that was involved in the making of this show. Uh, and that includes uh, Mr. Ken Deep, my co-host. And even though you didn't hear James Norton, uh, my fellow co-host in this episode, he will be in future episodes. He hasn't gone away. He hasn't disappeared. And the bug-eyed beast from, um, from I don't know, make up any place you like, hasn't swallowed him whole yet. Though it may happen someday, but not today. Anyway, so uh, I, again, I want to thank uh, Darth Skeptical and Jeff and um, not Jeff. Um, I'm sorry, Keith and um, and Kathy for their review of Gallifrey 19. And um, but speaking of Jeff, I I, I did meet Jeff Smith, who uh, speaking of our mashups and promos, uh, who was the actual winner of, a, of the, 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 the well, it wasn't really a contest, but it's the one that we all agreed upon, and we gave a special gift, a thank you gift for. Uh, Jeff Smith did, the, did our theme, our opening theme, and I want to thank him. Uh, met him at the New Media Expo. He's um, just as brilliant at, in person as he is uh, listening to his music. His new album, Ones and Zeros, are out. Uh, I, I really urge you to check it out. He has uh, he really he, he just recently redid um, the Rose. Um, Actually, it's um, Fantastic Rose, I believe is the episode title. Check it out. Go to gallifreyandembassy.org or podchocolate.net and check, look for, do a search for uh, Jeff Smith. We have his um, his video there and check it out. Uh, the updated Rose song, uh, Fantastic Rose, is also available. Uh, it's the same song, just a little updated. 
again, thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back next time for more Doctor Who Podshock. We have um, some <laughs> some surprises in store for you. And um, I guess that's all I can say because if I tell you anything more, it won't be a surprise. So um, once again, we do have those live shows that we did, which we recorded, which we reviewed each um, episode of the 2008 series, Series 4. That's uh, available if you haven't heard those yet. Those are available. They're raw, unedited, rough around the edges. But um, hey, it's um, it, it's if a lot of people enjoy the the live shows, we really built up a lot of momentum. In fact, we were on Talkshoe, who's uh, the what we use um, as the service provider for the live shows. We were up on their top twenty list the last few episodes um, as far as um, participation and downloads go. So uh, I think number thirteen one week, and I forgot seventeen maybe another whatever. But uh, we're up there. So once again, thank you. We'll be back next time. Take care, everyone. Cheers. You've been listening to Doctor Who Pachak by the fan run GallifreyEmbassy.org and presented by Outpost Gallifrey at Gallifrey1.com. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Come back next time for another exciting and informative episode of Doctor Who Podshock. You can email us at feedback at podshock.net. Opening theme by Jeff Smith at thejeffsmith.com. This is Louis Trapani. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Trapani. The following Art Trap production is brought to you by the Gallifrey Embassy and has been made possible by donations from listeners like you. Thank you so much. Not undue orders.